So I have a question for you. How many of you uh, watched Netflix? All right, look around. Look around at everybody. Here, turns out 73% of Americans watch Netflix, have, have uh, subscriptions. Uh, that is more than most of all the other cable providers uh, combined. It turns out Netflix is just huge. And you know why uh, they are so big? It's because they have asked the question, what's next? We'll look at that in a little bit. Um, it, it, that is the question that Stonebridge uh, Church is asking. Now, I know that in a few months, we're going to be asking, who's next, right? Who's the next senior pastor? But before we ask who's next, we need to ask, what's next? So that we get the right next senior pastor. And um, what, what's next is a question that is about what is our destiny? Who does God want us to be as a church? Uh, and as we're thinking about that, here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine we are forced, for some unknown reason, to uh, use a company as an example of a change agent. So someone, we, have to, we have to model ourselves after a company. And, again, for unknown reasons, we are required to choose either Netflix or Blockbuster. <clears throat> right? Which, which, would, which would you choose? Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, Blockbuster is out of business. And Netflix is the largest media company in the world. It's bigger than Disney. $150 million or billion dollar company. Uh, and it turns out that actually Blockbuster and Netflix, they, they have some common history. And the way Netflix got started was back in the early 90s, uh, a guy brought a, a DVD of Apollo 13 back to Blockbuster, and they charged him a $40 late fee. Well, in 1997, that man and a partner started this company that would uh, rent you DVDs and mail them to you, and you just had to have a queue on your uh, computer, and every time you sent the DVD back, they send you a new one. No late fees. No late fees. That's what Netflix was built on, and uh, they started that, and uh, by 1997, uh, they'd created it, and Ever since, Netflix has been asking the question, what's next? See, within just 10 years, they had shipped their billionth DVD, but the same year, they started streaming videos. And then they started producing their own television shows. And then they started producing movies. Roma, one of Netflix's produced movies, just won three Academy Awards. It's turning Hollywood upside down. Uh, and... Uh, so, here is a, I didn't know, does anybody know if they still rent DVDs? They do, they do, who knew? They you can still get those red envelopes, uh, but 10, no, 20 years ago, it was 100% of their business, now 2%, 2%, 3 million DVDs, uh, customers, compared to 139 million uh, streaming customers. So, so much for secular wisdom. You know, these companies we are forced to look at. But um, how about scripture? Do we see what 
does change ever happen in Scripture? Uh, yes, uh, all the time from the very beginning. Imagine Abraham, uh, he's, he's got a huge ranch full of animals, his family, his extended family, and God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to move. I want you to pick up everything and I want you to go. And Abraham appropriately asks, where? And he says, I'll show you. God said, I'll show you. You just get going. Really? That's change. That's change, trust, hope, faith in something brand new. Moses was an old man, lived an entire life when God called him to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And what was he supposed to do? He was supposed to change the nation to move them from where they'd been living for 400 years into a new place. Wow, change. And in the New Testament, Jesus... He, he took this table that had, been, uh, had huge meaning, such tradition, for thousands of years. And he, it was the Passover meal. And he said, okay, these two things, the bread and the wine, they mean something else now. We're going to change that. Really? His disciples, that's all they had ever known is that it meant one thing. No, something new. Change. Change is coming. Change has always come. Uh, and what we learn from scripture and Netflix and from life in general, um, three important lessons. And the first one is this, change is inevitable. You know, change used to happen so slowly that, you know, we hardly noticed. But now, boom, we got to check our phones every morning just in case something changed overnight that we got to know about. Uh, change is moving fast. Netflix is worth more than $150 billion today because it anticipated change, asked what's next, and made changes. Blockbuster is gone because it didn't. Uh, and when we look at the church, we are tempted to say, well, you know, things don't really change in the church. I mean, after all, okay, Jesus did make that change 2,000 years ago, but we've been doing it the exact same way he did it now for 2,000 years. So, you know, maybe, maybe things don't change that much, um, but it's actually been changing since it began. Since right after they had their first church service, church has been changing. And one of the most significant, biggest changes in the church, uh, moving from being an offshoot of Judaism to being open to everyone, happens in the book of Acts, chapter 10. It's a powerful story. I'm just going to read two verses from it. Verse 34 says, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. And then in verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The point of that verse is to say, they're in. I mean, if the Holy Spirit is going to come and land on people, they must be in. And these are Gentiles. These are Romans. These are centurions. These are soldiers of the enemy. These are non-Jewish people. Up until now, the church has basically been a subculture of the Jewish faith. After Acts chapter 10, we get in. You know, The only reason we are in church today is because of Acts chapter 10. It's the biggest change in the church, it all happened back then. Whatever people knew or thought they knew about church changed that day. 
and the church has been changing ever since. You know, it used to take hundreds of years and probably people burning at the stake for the church to change, right? I mean, it, things were fairly static. Today, changes in a heartbeat. I just read an article this week that said nine things that worked in church 10 years ago that don't work today. Ten, ten years, you know? It's moving fast. In a church that's looking for a new pastor to lead us for years to come, spoiler alert, things are going to change. There's going to be some changes. Um, we need to know what we need to let go of and what we need to hold on to for dear life. How do we learn that? How do we figure that out? Um, it's why we need the second lesson that we learn from Netflix and from Scripture. We need to understand our flywheel. This is a very popular image in um, industry, uh, but a flywheel is a mechanical device specifically designed to efficiently store energy. All right, so I know nothing about sports, and when it comes to mechanical things, I'm an expert in sports. So I... I, I but I'm pretty sure the flywheel in this picture is that big wheelie thing there, right? The round one, that's always a hint. But almost everything, if you look up machinery, I mean tractors, anything that's machinery, mechanical, it's got a flywheel. And um, it's, they are crucial to the machine because they store energy and they deliver energy back out and it's not just old-fashioned machines check this one out this is a nasa flywheel they are testing this 60,000 rpm so that to 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 power the space station so you know it this is a thing this thing that we call a flywheel they store and provide energy and anything that slows it down that gets in the way of what the flywheel does uh, detracts from the machine's ultimate efficiency. That's why we use the image in organizations. We say organizations and churches have flywheels, which means it's the core element of the business or the church around which every single aspect of the organization's activities and culture is aligned so that the flywheel contributes maximum momentum with minimum friction. That's what it's supposed to do. It, it provides the energy with as little friction as possible. So, for example, McDonald's has a flywheel. You know what it is? Cheap burger, fry, and shakes. That's their flywheel. That's their go-to. That's what they are built on. They do lots of other things. And they have playgrounds, and they have toys, and they have McRib sandwiches once in a while. But, <laughs> you know, nothing is going to get in the way of burger, shake, and fries. That's their, that's their flywheel. Um, if flywheels are so important, do we see them in Scripture? Absolutely. So um, the church's flywheel is so important that the Apostle Paul, he's writing to Christians in 1 Corinthians, and he begs with them, he pleads with them, be united about our flywheel. And we read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, uh, verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, Paul writing, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, does he mean about everything? Not a chance, right? We, we, we don't agree about everything. So what does he mean? About 
the most important thing. Our flywheel, united around the thing that enhances our power, that gives us energy, that's our north star that we never change, that we line up everything, and he spells it out in verse 22. Jews demand a sign, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ Jesus has come for us, has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So that's all in chapter one. And in chapter two, he then goes on and begins in verse one. He says, So that's why, as it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the first part of our flywheel. Then he goes on, he teaches all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians. He gets to chapter 15 and he says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Christ crucified, but if he, if he just died, then, then we're done. No, our flywheel is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Um, the flywheel of the whole church, the church universal, is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And it seems obvious, but boy, oh boy, do we get going on all kinds of things. Oh, we can make a lot of things important in the church besides that. Um, but just how important is an organization's flywheel? Ask Blockbuster, <laughs> right? Blockbuster's flywheel. What they thought was most important was renting DVDs in brick-and-mortar uh, stores. In fact, I heard somebody after the service last night, he said, you know, the, the president of Blockbuster was asked about this upstart Netflix. And he says, yeah, they don't, we don't have to worry about them. Wow. Um, so what about, what is Blockbuster's flywheel? Oh, now this is interesting. You might have said, well, renting DVDs uh, online. You should be fired. That's not, that's not their flywheel. Right? What's their flywheel? Netflix provides entertainment. That's it. Well, they do it by renting DVDs, yes, but also by creating their own material and by streaming. Who knows what they're going to do 10 years from now, but it's going to be providing entertainment. They don't, they don't move off of that. So flywheels are important. The flywheel of the whole church. Um, so what's the flywheel of this church? Right? Every church is unique, uh, and I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you what it ought to be like. It ought to be something like this, Stonebridge, blank, blank, so that we might proclaim Jesus Christ crucified and risen. We can't fall far from the tree, but every, every church is unique. It's based on who the people used to be who went here and who the people who are here now, and who the community is, and what's changed about Simi Valley. You know, there's so much uh, that goes into this specific church. Um, so whatever it is, we're going to discover it together, but don't stray far from Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Don't let go of it. And once you know your fly flywheel, Scripture and Netflix teach us a third thing. And it's a very important lesson. It's this. Be willing to change everything else. 
Oh, we hate this part, right? Oh, we can change. Not that. Not that. We don't want to change that. Um, there are always things in the church that we didn't want to change. We cannot change. It's based on Scripture. It's based on tradition. It's based on history. God spoke this to us. You want to hear a few? In the 50s, uh, divorced men could not be pastors or elders. That changed uh, it, it, 50 years ago. 40 years ago, women could not be pastors or elders. That changed 30 years ago. Church cannot have drums and guitars in service. <laughs> we have, as churches, fought over, split over, died over, all kinds of things. But here's, here's something. If you think you know a thing that has caused trouble for churches, you don't know a thing like the thing that caused trouble in the first churches. Huge, huge. Wow, what an issue. Not an issue today, but it was huge. They were coming to blows about it. And do you know where it started? In those non-Jewish churches that they let in in chapter 10. Oh my gosh, those Greeks. Huh. It, it caused problems. And now only five chapters later, by Acts 15, we get to this. 1 to 28, certain people from Judea, that's Jewish land, came to Antioch, Greek land, and were teaching the believers there, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. The big thing in the church was circumcision. It practically brought the church leaders to blows, and so they... Uh, Here's what happened in verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with those guys and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they went from Antioch back to Judea, back to Jerusalem, and everything was just polite until it wasn't. In verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them uh, with the Gentile churches. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders met to consider this question. I don't know if you've ever been in contentious session meetings, but that sentence does not describe what actually happened. There was plenty of arguing and debate and ranting and raving. And then in verse 7, it says, After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are, those Greeks. Eventually, thousands of years of tradition... And rules about circumcision changed. Changed. It wasn't the flywheel, it turned out. A lot of people thought it was back then. The apostles wrote a letter to the non-Jewish Christians, and they sent it back with Paul and Barnabas. And we read a little bit of it, beginning in verse 28. Here's what it says. It seems, and I'll speak in elder talk. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. 
you would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Wow! There's nothing in that about circumcision at all. And did you notice they told him four things, three of which, not a thing anymore. That one is still one we should work on, right? Um, everything, everything must be, we must be willing to change. Everything but the flywheel. So we get it. Churches have to change. But Stonebridge, haven't we changed already? I mean, my goodness, we've been changing so much. We painted the walls. We got new chairs. We've, you know, there's that pad out there. We've done fundraisers. We've had capital campaigns. I mean, how much change do we have to go through to say that we've changed? And what has happened that makes us need to change more? I will tell you. Change has happened. That's, that's what's been happening in, in Simi Valley, in, at Stonebridge. Um, how many times did Netflix have to change? As many as necessary. They keep changing all the time. Society keeps changing faster than ever. A senior pastor has left. Do you know 70 people have left the church in the last two years, mostly because they retired and moved away. That's a thing in Simi Valley. We need to understand that. We're going to keep losing people. Some of you have already got plans for Phoenix and then, you know, Arizona and Nevada. That's okay. But it, it's, that's a change we have to deal with. Fires and floods and the economy and technology, they've all changed. And not just since I was here 20 years ago, in the last five years, in the last three years, lots of change. So there are three things we can do as a church we can look at um, to hear God, to hear each other, and to get a sense of direction and clarity about the next steps we need to take. But just before we dive into those, I want to pause for a minute, and I want to talk personally to you, as, as much as I can talk personally to all of you. But I am well aware that we are talking about church change, and it, it's all very corporate. But in any group, there are people who are like, ah, you know what, I can't handle that. It's not my thing. I, I, maybe we have first-time visitors who are like, I don't even know this church. I don't really care too much about all this stuff. But you know what? In our own lives, things change. In the lives of people we care about, things change. And the great thing about the three things we're going to look at that can help us understand how the church needs to change is that those are the same three things any of us can use to look at our own lives, to understand how do I need to change? What, what, what's next for me? So stay with us. And, and, if, and if you're in a place where you're like, I really can't focus, There's, I got stuff in my own life, praise the Lord, you're in the right meeting. We're, we're going to talk about that. And I can say that because that's what happened to me. I have dealt with change many times. I've used these same three things to, to look at and to to understand where God is in my life, um, and whether it's at church or someone we care about or ourselves, uh, we need a sense of a new way forward. And we have ways to do that. So here are the three things. It's looking upward, inward, and forward. We'll take a look at each of those. We're going to look upward, inward, and forward. And I've learned these from personal experience. Um, 
from a time when I was wrestling with what to do with my life, with my job, here, here it was. I was comfortable. I was fine. I liked my job. I was good at what I did. I liked the people I worked with. Have you ever had that, those kind of comments and, or somebody tell you that? And what do you, you're always waiting for the next shoe to drop. It's always like, but, <laughs> but I was antsy. I, I, wasn't, I, wasn't able to, I wasn't able to live into all that I wanted to do. They were, they were tightening the, the boundaries on me, and, and I had a sense it was time to change. And one of the big deals was I had a sense, the boss had a sense it was time for me to change. And so I was really having to think through this. Um, and uh, it didn't feel imminent, but it was coming, change. And, and so I, the first thing I did was what we need to do as a church or as individuals. I, uh, we look upward at uplifting events. We look upward at uplifting events. Looking upward means it's not all about us. We aren't going to have to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We don't just look at the data or the statistics or the whatever. We have to look up. We have to look to the Lord and say, Lord, I, would you please be a part of this with us, with me? I can't do this by myself. It's a bit of surrender. It's a bit of letting go. And so we invite God into the process. And we look at uplifting events. There is plenty of time for negativity. There is plenty, there is plenty of bad. Guess what we always think about? That, the bad, the negative. We want to spend our time looking at the positive, looking at what's uplifting. Amazing moments in the life of the church but also in our own lives, looking at the, the best parts, the, who we are on our best day, that kind of thing. So we look at uplifting events, um, and for the church, we gather as many of us together uh, as possible, and through a series of questions and discussions and working together, we invite God into the very best moments that we have had in the life of the church and we ask God to show us more about himself through all of those events. And individually, we do the same thing. We intentionally bring God into our thoughts. Most of the time, we do this either maybe by journaling or by, by working in a group or going to some kind of seminar. For me, I was jogging. I, I was in the mountains. I had gone to a conference, and I was wrestling with all of this change going on or, or anticipated change and so I said, you know what, I'm just going to go out for a jog. I, was in an un I didn't know the area. I'd never been up the roads I was going up, but it was in a forest. And um, I began to work through this process. So I looked upward. I said, Lord, you know where, what I'm doing. You know my situation. Would you please be a part of this with me? And I began to think about the most positive things in my life, my family, my work, my friends. Uh, and I did this. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done this. I said, Lord, would you show me a sign? Give me a sign, Lord, of what I should do, of the direction I'm supposed to take. I'm a pastor, but I never asked for a sign. I wouldn't know what a sign looked like from God. But I've thought, I thought, well, you know what? It can't hurt, so I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask for a sign. So I'm jogging, and I'm talking to the Lord, and, and, I'm, and, and I come around a corner, and literally, this is what I see. A big yellow diamond that says, caution, dead end, 100 yards ahead. I said, Lord, that's my sign? <laughs> dead end, 100 yards ahead? Seriously? 
I'm standing in the middle of the street saying, seriously, God? And um, so this is the last time I asked for a sign. But, um, <laughs> so, but I laughed out loud, and that's when I had to move to the second thing that we can do, both personally as a church. We need to look inward at who we are at our core. Our core is another word for our heart, the best part of who we are, personally or as a church. Someone said it's what makes us sing when we think about it, that part of us. It's us on our best days. And there are questions that we can ask ourselves that draw that out, that help us get at our core, at our heart. I love Proverbs 20, verse 5. It says the, the purposes of a person's heart are like deep water, but a person of understanding draws them out. Uh, I think we've talked about this before. Deep water, you look down three or four feet, you can't see what's down there. But it says our purpose, our core uh, of who we are is down deep. But we will draw it up. And we do that in the what's next process all together. But personally, individually, we do it as well by looking at a number of things. Um, for me, jogging in the wood, that, in the woods, that dead-end sign forced me to look inward and decide if I was going to keep going or give up. Uh, it's like, really, seriously, a dead end? And I just said, okay, you know what? I'm going. Because turning back is not an option. I mean, metaphorically, I can't just go back to my old job and think everything's going to be fine. Something's got to give. Something's got to change. In my job, turning around wasn't going to work, so I said to the Lord and to the air, fine, if that's my sign, then I'm going to, let's play this thing out, and I ran up to the dead end, uh, and I found myself standing at a, uh, one of those metal uh, barriers, it was about knee high, and out in front of me was wilderness, it was a forest, and bushes and scrub right in front of me, and I'm done. I literally stood there, uh, and I thought about um, the best part of me, the, my family, Carolyn and the girls. And we were in a great place. We loved our home. They were in good schools. Everything was settled. And the problem was, those are our limitations as well. As well. You know what the bad thing was? We were in a great place, and our girls were doing great in school. I, we didn't want to move, and we didn't want to take them out of school, and so my job options were very narrow. And uh, I just had to think about it and then surrender it to God and to trust God that he would reveal a way forward. And so I said, I'm just going to stand here. I'm just, I'm just going to stand and wait, Lord. I'm, you know, it's like, well, if you brought me here, then, I'm, then fine. I'm just going to stand here. Luckily, it didn't take weeks, you know, it was... Um, but I was waiting for God to reveal something. And that's when I did the third thing that we in the church need to do. And that's look forward at a direction and a next step. God has put one particular verse on my heart for us, for people I work with, for ourselves as individuals. It's Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That wraps up our life. What that says is, life is a journey. Our faith life is a journey. And God's participation in us, with us, is, to, is by um, giving us a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. A lamp to our feet is, you can imagine, a flashlight. Just 
point it down. An oil lamp works the same. You point it down, you can see clearly one step to take. And then you look out in front and you see a direction to take. And we aren't quite sure where we're headed, but we have a direction. Now, why doesn't God give us five steps? Well, then there's no faith for four. Right? We say, well, and I know what to do. Here I go. No, no, one. By the way, there's always multiple options. And we want to, why can't I take that one? Why can't I have that one? What, what about the, and so God, we want to be very clear. What's the next step, Lord, I should take? And it's often the hard one. But he says, I want you to take that one. And guess what he gives us when we take this one? The next one. So much of what I do is just helping you take one step. Because I have great confidence that if you take one, there'll be another one. God always has one for us. He gives us just enough clarity to see that one step. If we look upward and inward and forward, God will show us our next steps for ourselves and for the church. Um, but I want to say I've been careful not to give any examples for the church because I don't know what they are. This is a, a, a mo- this is a big sense of surrender where the guy up front or the gal up front doesn't have the answers. The elder board doesn't have the answers. We have to work together and listen for the Lord's direction. Uh, that's what, what next is all about, our process. We are not masters of our fate. We can't, because I don't know if you've ever done this, but every church I've ever been in has done this. We've made plans. We've done work. We've, we've, we've organized everything that we think we ought to do. We've made the plan. And then we say, Lord, please bless our plan. I don't think he has any obligation to do that. We need to be listening for his plan. And then guess what? His blessing comes automatically. So, um, so there I was standing at that barrier and uh, the, the thing that happened was I just stood there and I kept looking. And after several minutes, I went, hmm, you know what? That, that dirt there actually looks a little bit like a path. And I stepped over the barrier and I walked down this path in between these bushes out to the pines that were out 30, 40 yards ahead. And I turned as this path turned and there I saw the path. It was clear as day, but it was narrow. It was dirt and it went down into a ravine and about 100 yards the other side, it went up the other side. And I went, oh my gosh. There's always a path. When you come to a dead end, there's always a path. God has a plan for us. We don't know what it is. In my case, what he said to me is, Neil, it's going to be harder. All that jogging on the sidewalk, that's done. The next thing for you, you're going to have to trust me more. And within a couple months, I had a brand new job. It was the hardest thing I ever did, but the most rewarding, the most fulfilling as well. It was, but the, the lesson is that every dead end, there's always another path. There's always another way. God has a plan for us, for this church, for each of us. Um, so I just want to stop for a minute and say, you know, it, 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 there's a workbook that we'll use for the church. And you don't need to do any prep, just come. 
Um, but I have been the person sitting in the pew when God touched my heart and said, and, and I said, how do I do this? I need this. What else? Is this, is this a 90-minute seminar? Are you going to tell me what to do now? And then I would walk away so frustrated. I have been in that place. If you're in that place, there is help. Of course, we have scripture, of course. But I took what I learned from that and worked on the church material, and I worked on personal material, too. I am not selling books. I promise you, I'm not selling books. But I have one. It's, it, it's called Move Forward, and I designed the process so in seven days you get life-changing clarity and direction. Um, it's on Amazon. You can buy it. If you buy it, I'll sign it. But it's, I, am not, I truly am not selling books. You don't need my book. We have scripture. We have one another. But I, I have been that person, as I said, so frustrated. I, I've got to, I've, thank you. This is great news. Now what do I do? And then it's, and then it's time to pray. It's like, ah. So there you go. If that would help, I would love for you to experience that. But I'll end by reminding us change is inevitable in our own lives, in the church. It just keeps happening. So it's important to remember our flywheel. Don't let it go. In our own lives, in the church. And as long as we've got that flywheel, everything else can change. Everything else can go. God can do that in your life, in our life, in the church life. So let's get ready for it.